I try to do what you do, Jason. I try to build bridges, build bridges, and to show people the real China, the China I experienced, the China I grew up with, not the China that's reporting in New York Times, yeah. which is seen as a bizarre world. So yeah. I, th this is definitely something I have always been interested. In. I also talk to activists, peace activists. Mm. I talked to Ken Jones from Asheville, North Carolina, who's part of the mass peace action. And, you know, they actually took me to a pro-Palestinian rally in, in, in downtown Asheville. In U.S., most people live in kind of bubble, you know, mm -hmm. like they're living in the bubble where they, it's like work, home, and the shopping mall. They're like traveling between the point A to point B. Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Carl Jaw, host of Silk and Steel, uh, whom you can find on Twitter at Carl Jaw. That's with a C, C-A-R-L-Z. H-A or Z-H-A, or on YouTube, also at Carl Jaw, has been hopping around the world, all over the place, really. We thought it would be a great time to get his insights on what's going on in Sino-U.S. relations. Uh, unless I miss something, Carl is in Indonesia, right? I am back, yes. I'm back to back Bali after a <laughs> brief, brief journey back into the United States. Uh, I came back already. So not only did you go to the United States, but you were actually in the U.S., and then you came to Beijing for what, two days, three days? Yes, I did. So I, I, it wasn't planned because I, I originally my plan was just go back for a family trip because my parents haven't seen their grandson or my wife uh. Uh, for one half years. I was in Indonesia, so I, I thought it was a good time to spend some time with my family. And I got a call from RT that said, "Hey, we have this opportunity for you to co-host the RT coverage of the Belt and Road Forum in Beijing. Would you like to come?" I'm like, "Hell yes!" <laughs> and I thought I was going to be in Beijing, you know, like talking to Putin. But it turns <laughs> out uh, RT actually built their studio on the actual Great Wall of China, wow. like two wow. and a half hours north of Beijing. It's not even in the Beijing city. It's in the Luanping, Hebei province. So, uh -huh. so for the air, I had to drive about two hours and a half. There's nothing there. There's nothing except the, for the Great Wall and the hotel. Like I, to buy socks. I need to beg for the hotel staff to to, to drive <laughs> 35 kilometers into the wow. to, to the town to buy me socks. Wow. So yeah, that's what it was. It well, was I mean, uh, as cool as it would have been to be like you know meet Putin, obviously, like doing a sh a live broadcast from the Great Wall, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's it's yeah. pretty damn. Bad. I mean, I I've, I live next to the Great Wall. I've never done that. Now I'm kind of I'm really jealous. So well, you, I, I recommend I recommend that section of the Great Wall. Don't go to the Badarin where all the tourists go. Go to a uh, Jin San. I think it's called Jin San Li. Jin San Li. Jin Li. Yeah, because it's two and a half hour outside of Beijing. Nobody goes there. Nobody goes there. So you have is the this, wall. Yeah, go is ahead. Is it near, near Gubei Watertown, that area? Uh, yes. Yes, it's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been I to mean, that part. It, it's still probably like, uh, like an hour or like 45 minutes away from Gubei. But <laughs> it's it's uh, pretty pretty remote. But I highly recommend it because you got all the section of the wall unrestored, like the, in the, the wild gray wall to yourself. Oh, wow. That yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I saw you uh, some pictures of you uh, uh, scaling the Great Wall, and it looked pretty intense. That looked a lot like the Simitai area, which is Gubei, you know, area also. So I guess that whole area is just like peaks and valleys. It looked uh, in intense. Um, so you went to Russia, and it just so happens that when you arrived there, what happened? Oh, um, I, again, it's not planned. <laughs> it just so <laughs> sure. happened. I up one day, my phone was going off the hook, and everybody asked me if I was okay. And it turns out that Prigozhin launched his uh, quote-unquote coup. And uh, I was in Moscow. The, the Prigozhin's troop never made it into Moscow. Yeah. They were like three and a half hour away before you know everything was pulled off. So I went to a, I went to an evening concert, and then after the concert was over, I was told by my tour guide everything is over. So I had a <laughs> interesting day. Yes. So I I find it really interesting because when you were in the states, like, and you went to you flew to China, you had brought you as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, you brought your family with you to the states, and then you basically were just how did the kids react to daddy's leaving to China <laughs> right now as soon as we get to the United States? Um, well, I I I I cannot thank my wife enough for <laughs> putting up with me just taking off a week to go to China and back. Uh, but my my kid he he has enough things to distract him from you know American fast food. <laughs> he likes he likes KFC. He likes KFC fried chicken. <laughs> yeah. Well, KFC is everywhere now. I feel like they're taking over the world. It used to be McDonald's. Now it feels like KFC. KFC, watch out, McDonald's. Okay, so I have a question because you you live in Indonesia and that's home, I guess. But you were in the United States and you are a U.S. citizen. So which where is home? Did it feel like you were going home or did it feel like you were going like somewhere else? What was it like returning to the United States as a U.S. citizen who lives in Indonesia? Well, so I was actually visiting my parents' uh, house uh, in North Carolina. I, I, they they moved to North Carolina after I went to college, so I actually didn't spend significant time there. I, I was in North Carolina maybe for a year, and uh, what I what struck me is um, how little has changed, like physically, visually. Mm. You know, like it, it it looks the same as if um, when I first went to visit my parents in like 2003. You know, like. 20 years ago, right? Wow. Okay, there's more houses now. Like when, when my parents first moved in, they were like one of the, they were like the number eight house in their subdivision. Now there's more houses, but um, you know, it's just added more malls. But other than that, it's not, not really much has changed. Like um, I, I can still navigate, you know, like I can, I can navigate pure by memory. So that's how little, yeah. You mentioned they're adding more malls because that's one thing I noticed in China too. You know, I came here 2011 or 2012, and there were there were a few giant super malls here in Beijing, but now there's like I don't know 50 malls in Beijing. Is that same process happening in the United States where they're just adding malls everywhere? Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, there's there's more people coming into the area because uh, you know, especially after COVID, people from like New York area they they realize hey, you know, they can work from home they can live anywhere why why live in new york city and and so so they're getting a lot of snowbirds coming down but wow. like i said the visually it's not it's oh one thing that did surprise me is a sticker shock 
because I had to pay like an eight dollar frozen banana at the at North Carolina Zoo for my child. Eight dollar frozen banana. It's like, <laughs> like, you know, my child have to have it. So there's nothing I can do. But um, I asked my parents. They said, yeah, the price has gone a lot, gone up a lot in the last couple of years. Um, wow. You know, which because I've been away for four and a half years. I I wasn't I wasn't uh, expected to drop like uh, you know thirty dollars in a fast food restaurant. Wow. You know, yeah. I took my I took my uh, my family to Carl's Jr. at LAX. I took my yes, I took my kid, my junior, to Carl's Jr. and I was <laughs> like, we just ordered like a couple combo meals, and it's like thirty bucks. The bill, wow. like, I mean, like this fast food restaurant. I mean, I, I, it's that's a big shock to me, and I don't know how how people back home put up with that. You know, I, I have my own story about Carl's Jr. because I'm a big fan of, you know, I'm an American, so I love different kinds of fast food, and we have McDonald's and Burger King and like stuff like that here in China. But I was in Shanghai in the airport on my way back to Beijing a couple weeks ago, and I found a Carl's Jr.'s in the airport. And I was this is the first one I've seen in China, so I, I was like, okay, I have to go. But you know, it wasn't nearly as expensive as what you're describing. So uh, I guess they have different price points for different countries. That's really interesting because you know we've seen the what is it nine percent interest for a couple of years straight. Now it's down to like three point four uh, CPI. So that's that's crazy that you're spending uh, thirty bucks for fast food for your family is that was that the primary thing that you noticed difference that was culture reverse culture shock going back to the united states sticker shock how were your conversations with did you talk to people other than your own family friends people who lived in the area and what what was the feeling on the ground in the u.s versus how it felt before is everything really like uh this by you know very uh polarized situation or like are people just reg you know like Maybe it's blown out of proportion by the by the media, which blows everything out of proportion. What were conversations about the world like? Well, I I you know I, I talked to different people like like people like my my parents' neighbor right who who may or may not be overtly political, but I also talked to activists, peace activists. Mm. I talked to Ken Jones from Asheville, North Carolina, who's part of the Mass Peace Action, um, and and you know they actually took me to a pro-Palestinian rally in in, in downtown Asheville. So the it, what feel is um, in U.S. Most people live in kind of bubble, you know, mm -hmm. like they're living the bubble where they it's like work, home, and the shopping mall. They're like traveling between the point A to point B to point <laughs> C, and you know you and you always like you know you are kind of in your own bubble. You're in your car, in your office space, in your home. Um, one thing that really struck my wife who came from Indonesia is like, mm -hmm. okay, it's like, wow, in in Indonesia, you will see people everywhere, mm -hmm. right? In the United States, you see cars everywhere, but you don't see people. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, I guess Unless you go to shopping malls, right? Unless right, yeah. you go to the shopping mall. So I think that that's a, that's a big difference uh, for her. But it, it does seem U.S. people are um, there's less feeling of community, like than say you are in Bali, because in Bali every like they have a lot of religious holidays in, in Bali, so and almost like every month I'd be required to go travel with my wife back to her home village to practice wow. in the monthly. village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> monthly, they you go back to her village to celebrate the religious festival together with the village, right? So you you have that kind of community 
That sounds um, awesome. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I mean, like in United States, if you're not part of a church or, or something, I don't know. I don't know where like that. There, there's less. I guess there's kind of less overt uh, like that social bonding going on. Mm-hmm. You mentioned they were having fun because of fast food and they love KFC. Because your kids, how old are okay. they? First, let me let me qualify. I, I'm talking sure. about my kid. So my wife, according to my wife, also me, the, the American fast food in Indonesia is way better than American fast food. Really? So the Carl's Jr. and uh, and uh, Burger King and McDonald's. Well, actually, I don't know if they have Carl's Jr. in Indonesia, but but Burger King and McDonald's is way way better in, huh. in Asia because they have like local flavors, have different uh. like even the texture, the chicken. Like one of my complaint with my wife is like, oh my god, this chicken doesn't taste like chicken. <laughs> and that's explained to her in the United States. We raise the chicken. For from the egg to you know to burger to to, to burger meat in like seven weeks you know like <laughs> because like, whereas in, yeah. in I mean they still do have industrialized uh, uh, chicken farming in Indonesia but uh, in many places like Bali people still have like basically free ranging chicken they right. they 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 grow chicken for like you know six seven months because they usually don't slaughter the chicken right away because they wanted to have eggs mm. and so 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 yes so, so the chicken actually tastes like chicken. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. gotta try this because you know I don't remember that going from America to China. I don't have a memory that chicken changed flavor. But now I have to go back and try this now for sure. But what did your kids think? Because you know they, you said that it's been four and a half, five years since you went back to the states. For them, it's like an alien world, right? So what did they think about the United States? Were they well, like I, what thrilled to be there, or was it like well, weird for them? My kid is two, two and a half, so I, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just, it just. Oh, my dad is taking me to a new yeah. place. Yeah. 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 Cool. Oh yeah. You're listening to the bridge. Let's talk a little bit about politics. So we had, let's start with Blinken's trip to China. A lot has happened since then, but I think that's interesting. So Sino-US relations had been kind of frozen, you know, cool. Things are warming up now. But Blinken came over to China initially to kind of start to warm things up after, I guess, Tim Cook and Elon Musk sort of got everything started. Was that a positive development? Was that a meaningful trip? Well, I think China was sending a signal, right? The fact that it was inviting all those American CEOs, Elon Musk, Tim Cook, Bill Gates, et cetera, uh, not for a while, not talking to Biden. <laughs> They're saying, like, look, we are open for business. We are welcome, you know, Western uh, people to come to do business in China. But, we, you know, we don't we we don't like to be lectured, you know, like mm-hmm. what only Blinken likes to do. Yeah. And we don't want a repeat of that Alaska Anchorage meeting where, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. both sides were just basically talking past each other. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the American side did a lot of grandstanding basically for their own domestic audience. Mm-hmm. And then what's the point of meeting, right? And what's, mm-hmm. what's the point of meeting in Beijing? You can do that at home. Uh, you know, there was a seven hour meeting. Uh, I think more than seven hour meeting. Uh, it, was, it was seven hour meeting with Lincoln just with former Chinese foreign, foreign minister. But it was a long drag out process. I, I very much would like to be a fly on the wall in those 
those uh, situations to see what exactly they said in private. Um, but we, we have seen, you know, that was followed up with, uh, uh, I think it was before Gina Raimondo, right? And, um, and yeah. also, yeah. I, also, then there was uh, Jenna Yellen. There was Jenna yeah. Yellen. So there was like a series, and then you have Kevin, you have Newsom, right? California governor. Well, before we uh, get to Newsom, can I ask you about Yellen? Yeah. Because Yellen went to China. She apparently had a good time. It looked like she was having a good time. She was on the tarmac when uh, she landed in in San Francisco, and she's announced that she's going back to China in 2024. So uh, my feeling is the U.S. wants China to buy more treasuries. What do you think? Well, I think that's most people's reading. I mean, what's a Yellen's job? Yellen yeah. is a treasury secretary. Like, why is she always be at the present when uh, doing China meeting? Because, uh, you know, Janet Yellen famously said, U.S. can afford to from war. But the reality is, no, no, U.S. can. Uh, it needs countries like China or Japan or some other um, foreign countries to invest in U.S. treasury bills. And, and if that, if that stop that result could be catastrophic for United States this, this is the real reason you uh, Janet Yellen is going to China is saying, hey, please, please buy our treasury bills. Uh, <laughs> and and, uh, and and but but this is a series of meeting, I guess, that led to the 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 Xi Biden summit in San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. But I think which you you were present for that also. Yes. Also, <laughs> I was uh, actually my my sister that weekend invited me to to visit uh, visit their family. So it just wow. so, so happens that I was in town. And uh, they if you did, want something they did. to happen in your country, just have Carl Jaw over. It's going to start off <laughs> kick off right away. So, so they did clean up San Francisco. I drove through San Francisco all the way to North Point. Uh, but what they did is they, they moved all the homeless population away from like all the important um, busily travel venues where all the APEC dignitary will visit to like less visible part of the city. I mean, like, mm. it's not true they, they got rid of all homeless because I, I saw homeless people. They're just like yeah. in the back street now. They're in the back street. Yeah. They're, not, <laughs> they're not visible. But the toll has definitely changed after Newsom's visit to China mm-hmm. because even mm-hmm. even during the Gina Raimondo and even Jenna Yellen visit, the toll was still um, is not quite, it can't quite be described as a war. Maybe, maybe yeah. Jenna Yellen had a great time because she had those <laughs> mushrooms. But, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, Gina Raimondo, you know, she wasn't happy. Huawei yeah. used the new phone during her visit. Well, she was kind of lecturing. You know, she had the same kind of Anchorage style meeting feeling like she was coming to China to be like, you know, oh, America wants you to do this and America wants you to do that. So she kind of was still in that old sort of mentality. And it does feel like things have warmed up a little bit um, in terms of Gavin Newsom. He he was like spinning around in cars and he seemed to actually really be having a good time and really trying to promote Sino-California subnational. This is the new term that's coming out all the time now, subnational relations. And maybe California is looking to install an enormous amount of power charging stations so that they can start to develop their EV market in the United States because it probably be one of the largest markets outside of China in the world. California is, you know, the fifth largest economy if it was separate from the United States. Why was Newsom really here? Was he here because he wanted to promote Sino-US relations or was he setting himself up for a future presidential run? What do you think? 
Well, it could be both, Jason. <laughs> I, I, I think really he was ultimately any US, what any U.S. politician does is to further their own <laughs> their own uh, political career, and that's right, what he's yeah. doing. But it, but it doesn't mean he couldn't be helpful. I think it was very helpful that he was promoting a quite different tone with, in his interaction with 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 China. He took the high speed train, you know, like God. I wish. <laughs> I wish California has went with China on the yeah. ice field. Know? So the, the tone Kevin Newsom uh, set during his visit, that was very hopeful. And, and that actually was, uh, I think, set the tone for the Xi Biden summit in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I definitely think there's a warming up. And like mm -hmm. Winston Churchill said, jaw jaw is better than world war. So, I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that they, they're meeting, the fact they're talking is better than not, than them not talking. And, and I think also at this particular juncture, you know, there's some decision makers in U.S. are also finding Finally, realizing the hard limit on the the U.S. global empire, because now Janet Yellen, to the contrary, U.S. cannot fight a two front war, and much less a three front war like another confrontation in in East Asia with China. So I drew the analogy to the period around 2001. So in the early part of 2001, the China-U.S. tension was at all-time high. There was a Hainan spy plane incident when the U.S. spy plane was forced landed in on the Chinese island of Hainan. Just a few months later, September 11th happened, U.S. attention got redirected to Middle East. And Bush actually came to Shanghai during the subsequently for APEX meeting. And I think from that point on, there was a sort of understanding was established between the higher up between in China and U.S. that they need to work in a more cooperative relationship mm -hmm. because you know, the U.S. strategic focus has shifted to to Middle East and they wanted to have a more friendly relationship with China. So for the next 10 years from, I say, 2000, uh, 2001 to up to 2009 uh, to early part of Obama term, China, U.S. and China had a good, I would say, good 10 years of relationship. And there was even, Obama even said, promoted the so-called strategic partnership with China. Mm -hmm. now, now it seems like so ancient history, but that was, I think this today is, could be seen as analogous to mm -hmm. that pivotal point in 2001. This like U.S. is overstretched. You, you know, you, as much as the, the this uh, U.S. empire wants to be the global hegemon, you can't. It, so, so it has to reach some sort of, even if temporary, accommodation with China, which is encouraging. I mean, let's remember, it's not the China that's pushing for U.S.-China confrontation. Uh, China has always wanted to do business, including with the United States. At the end of the day, the business China is business. Uh, I don't know what the business department is at this point, but so any kind of thought in this relationship, I think it's possible. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Well, it looks to me that there's a lot of talking going on and things are friendlier in terms of constant uh, diplomacy. And we have uh, military to military uh, communication again uh, since 
Pelosi's visit to Taiwan province. But we also have not a lot changing in terms of like the tariff war or sanctioning of individuals and companies. So even though the United States is talking a lot with China, and I think just before she went to San Francisco, there was like a joint declaration for tripling the amount of global solar power in the entire world, probably really more for COP28, which is coming up. But the United States hasn't taken a lot of concrete actions to defuse any of the real trade tensions with China. It's more like, hey, let's be friendly. But in the past, a lot of an analyst, including myself and you, have said, the United States, we, we need to see what they're going to do. We need to see, are they going to take concrete actions to back up what they're saying? But what the United States seems to have done is just gone on a spree of diplomacy and been very friendly with China, but it still hasn't taken a lot of concrete action. Are there steps that the United States should take to show that it is uh, these, these are meaningful developments? If the United States doesn't take steps to defuse the trade war, should China be buying more treasuries from Yellen next year? Should that be a prerequisite for China looking upon U.S. treasuries more favorably in 2024? So that's again. I don't. I was not privy to the private conversation that happened in the back room. But what we have seen right now is basically a succession of hostility, right? A ceasefire. It's not a rolling back. It's not a. Um, uh, this is not quite the Jack uh, Nixon visit China moment. Mm -hmm. right? This is uh, this is just like hey, let's call it uh, armistice. Like U.S. is not putting on more sanctions on China mm -hmm. at the moment. But, but it's not rolling back the old sanctions either. It's just kind of retching down of the rhetoric. Um, and well, yeah, we have to see. We have to see where that leads us. Well, but it, it, it's positive in the sense that the U.S.-China relationship is not deteriorating even further because mm -hmm. just a couple months ago, it seems there's no floor to the U.S.-China relationship. It was a free fall. So mm -hmm. right now, it's like we have arrested the free falling phase, but it hasn't really like rising significantly back up yet. Mm -hmm. But but the fact that you stop free fall, it's it's still a positive development. Mm. <laughs> so we, we have to start from where we were just a few months back. Mm -hmm. And and I, I mean, from, from there, maybe, you know, they're doing easy stuff right now. They're doing stuff like increasing people to people exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Restoring the um, by restoring the airline, for example, air travel, because mm -hmm. when I flew white books, a ticket to fly to Beijing in mid-October, I, I couldn't get a direct flight. I could mm. not. I had to fly from New York to Hong Kong and then back from Hong Kong to to Beijing. Mm. And, and and that this is because the there was a drastic cutdown of the US China flight due to COVID, which never really mm -hmm. recovered post-COVID. So this is something they're working on to restore, to increasing flight, increasing people to pe people exchange. And China is doing its part, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like there's some encouraging sign. The first they did the, the six days transit visa where you don't need uh, you don't need to visa as long as you can prove you, you're traveling outside right. of China at the end of six days. So you can basically visit China, say Shanghai visa-free, as provided you have a ticket out of Shanghai after six days. And now they're rolling out the 15 days uh, uh, free visa for for European countries plus Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Hoping they do that for United States, right? I mean, like, but maybe they're just experimenting, you know, see <clears> how that 
proposed, and maybe they're doing that in phase, rolling out in phases. I'm really hoping they roll out that to Indonesia because <laughs> yeah. give the 15 days to Malaysia, already. <laughs> you know, Indonesia is the next step. So. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the bridge. So, in terms of people-to-people exchanges, she uh, mentioned that he wants to increase fifty thousand U.S. students studying in China over the next five years. And what do you think about that? I'm in a private group, firstly. And some people were really distraught by that. I was really surprised because I thought this is a fantastic development. What we need is more Americans to come to China, in my assessment, so they can say to the media, that's not true, because there's a lot of stuff in U.S. media that's inaccurate about China. But the pushback I got in some of my private WeChat groups was, why aren't these opportunities going to developing nations, to African nations, to South Asian nations, to Middle Eastern nations, to South American nations, where they really do need access? to high quality higher education and coming to China would be a wonderful influence on those dev- so what is what is your take what is your take I don't that? think this is a zero sum situation China is doing both China is I mean there are more uh, students from the global south that's coming to study in China today and and I think one of the actually the biggest win is uh because of COVID restrictions, a lot of mm-hmm. students wouldn't be able to come to resume their studies in China. So that the biggest hurdle actually has been removed. And, and China is providing scholarship for mm-hmm. people in Latin America, in, in, in Africa, in, in, in Southeast Asia to come. You know, I know a lot of Indonesian students are now going to China to study. So, so it's not like if they open up for 50,000 uh, American students, then that, that there's no more spot left for, right. for <laughs> For the rest of the world, that's not true. So China always pursued the multi-pronged approach, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, Chinese engagement with the United States does not preclude its mm-hmm. engagement with the global South. That China has always engaged with with global South, regardless of its uh, relationship with the United States. And I agree with you. You know, any kind of opening people to people change is good. I mean, most of the Americans don't have a passport. You know that this is why they <laughs> they, they bleed blind whatever their mainstream media tells them because they've never been to China. The only yeah. thing, the ideas they have about China is whatever they read in the newspapers or the internet, which 90% it just, mm. it just crap. I think seeing is believing mm-hmm. and, and getting more Americans to actually experience in China would ex- change a lot of minds. Yeah, I think 50,000 might not be enough. I think we we should see a lot more. I'm hoping that this is just one kind of exchange program because even before this program started right now, like Americans can access, you know, individual universities and apply to come to China. So I'm hoping this is 50,000 in addition to any individual U.S. students who are already thinking about applying. I mean, I actually, Ben Norton, economist, he's now in Beijing studying at a university here. In terms of, well... Uh, I've been watching your show and I watched you have some very interesting shows because you you actually invite people on with whom you have almost nothing in common where that you disagree with them enormously. And you had a gentleman named Aslan. I don't want to go into that in great detail, but it was a fantastic show, by the way. Uh, and not only I watched that, several of my coworkers watched that episode as well. And we're just like thrilled with how you handled that. But I saw that you did a show with three uh, Chinese Americans, which I thought was a fantastic 
show because, you know, my show, The Bridge, we're trying to help people in the U.S. understand China, people in China understand the U.S. And these all three of these uh, young men that you interviewed were Chinese Americans who didn't really know much about China, except that they had moved to China and had their own personal firsthand experience. Is that some is that a kind of show that you might be doing in the future? Because in terms as an American, I didn't know anything about China before I moved here. I knew that there was a place called Beijing and that, that there was fried rice, you know, like nothing, stereotypes. And coming over here was profoundly life-changing for me, you know, 11, 12 years ago. Uh, I think that th that episode that you did was outstanding in terms of like it really opened uh, a lot of conversations about perceptions people might have about what life in China is really like. Because the, even though these people were, you know, second or third generation, Chinese people, their understanding of China was almost as, you know, empty, I would say, as my own until they came over and had firsthand experiences. And it was completely different from they what they were going to think. Is that something that you might be doing in the future? Well, I mean, definitely, because I the my whole point of my podcast is I I try to do what you do, Jason. I try to build bridges, build bridges and you show people the real China, the China I experienced, the China I grew up with, not the China that's reported in New York Times, yeah. which you seen as a bizarre world. So yeah. I, th this is definitely something I have always been interested in doing, just to show chi China as is, not not you know to serve some kind of political purpose. You know, you also you Silk and Steel. When I was first introduced to your podcast, um, it's also really in-depth histories about China, because, you know, most people don't know, most people outside of China don't know much Chinese history. You also do analysis of Chinese history and then analogies with kind of contemporary Chinese political uh, events. Would you say that that's how your podcast started as like kind of like a survey of Chinese history? Well, history is my passion. You know, I, I'm always no, very. You can. I can talk about history all day. Um, you know, the, the geopolitics part. That's that. Just kind of because I can't stand all, all all these mainstream disinformation on China anymore. I feel like I need to speak mm. up. Uh, but China is always my original passion, and and uh, and for a lot of Chinese people as well. Like the the history is kind of deeply embedded mm. in the Chinese culture. There's a lot of Chinese like cultural reference to. Mm. China's own history. So to really understand China, you kind of have to understand the history, where it come from. I wanted to flesh out China, the whole picture of China, as much as possible to my audience, you know, to, to help them understand the past, which will help them to understand the present. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say surprising to me how much history there is in China. Like I, I have a co-host named Bebe and uh, sometimes she'll say, yeah, I don't really know anything about that, but I just know this poem. And then she'll quote a poem perfectly accurate and then translate to me what it means about a historical period. I'm like, what are you talking you don't know about Chinese history? Like I could not quote Shakespeare all of a sudden and just start like, telling you about the context in Europe when this was written. Like, I think it's remarkable how much uh, poetry, by the way, is memorized. And all of this poetry that children memorize from 5 to 10, 12 years old is all related to different historical ideas and cultural ideas. It's actually, it makes me want to go study Shakespeare and Chinese history because I feel so ignorant sometimes. You know, just like regular Chinese people who think that they don't know much about history, completely, you know, much more educated about Chinese history than I am about Western history or U.S. history. 
to talk about military to military talks a little bit, because that is something that is concerning. Uh, the U.S. and Canada, they oftentimes fly their uh, sorties right next to Chinese airspace with uh, reporters who are saying, oh my gosh, we're only just right next to China and they're escorting us. How dare they? So like, is military to military exchanges between uh, the United States and China, is this something that might potentially diffuse uh, tensions in, in the Pacific? I think the, the idea of military to military exchange is so there are no miscalculations on either side about the other side's intentions. You know, maybe I imagine the, the U.S. Admiral will say something like, OK, look, we, we're just doing this, <laughs> but we're, we're just doing the, It's just a posture. We're doing this for show, you know, to, to, <laughs> to show our, you know, sponsors, show our quote unquote allies in East Asia. But we, we don't really mean to, to start a war. I think that that's what really uh, it, it's 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 meant for. It's, it's meant for a clear communication channel means there's no miscalculation about each other's intentions. I, I don't expect that U.S. will back off, say, on its surveillance flight. That has been going on since 2001, you know, since the Hainan spy plane incident. The, the only difference now is now they have to fly the reporters and so they can put out the video on, on, on CNN and WC, uh, on Wall Street Journal and say, oh my God, the Chinese fly so close to us in South China. <laughs> You know, yeah, like they yeah, they fly four thousand miles away, five thousand miles away off the coast of China, and then they feign surprise when, like, you know, they're twelve miles from the Chinese coast, and China's like, you know, sends a fighter up to just escort them as they're traveling. It's it shouldn't be surprising when Russia flies close to Alaska, the U.S. sends sorties to escort them across, the, you know, the the area to make sure that they're not crossing into U.S. territory. This is a common practice. It's very frustrating for me. I find this absolutely bizarre. Well, I think any time when top U.S.-China leader present, there's always opportunity for further diplomacy. And climate change happened to be one of those low-hanging fruit that U.S. and China can cooperate right. on, right? And and it's you know because China is the world leader in the producer of solar batteries, of solar energy, wind power, et cetera. Et cetera. Wind turbines, solar batteries, they're all produced by China. So U.S. have to work with China if mm. Biden is serious about, you know, fighting the global climate change. This is something that that they can work on without even touching the other stuff like the, the tech sanctions and stuff like that. Right. So I think this is definitely a big opportunity to to kind of build upon whatever consensus they had back in San Francisco. Well, you mentioned the Bali uh, talks between Xi and uh, Biden, and you were saying on Li Jingjing's show that you hope that the meeting in San Francisco meant that the Bali consensus was carried forward. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the things that China and the U.S. can or should or have agreed to cooperate on and, you know, maybe give us a little bit of hope? <laughs> well, one of the things that coming out of this meeting is the U.S. reaffirm its uh, one China principle, right, which means U.S. is not seeking to promote Taiwan independence. That's a big that's a big issue for Beijing. And and so so this is a U.S. U.S. may say, yeah, we may sell them weapons, but you know, really, that's for our 
military industrial complex profit, we're not really trying to, uh, you know, push for Taiwan independence. Whether China buy that is a different matter. But, but I mean, it's the, 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 the sometimes the words itself is important, and then mm. for U.S. to verbalize that that yeah. they do not for Taiwan independence, that is important for China. And and for and China reiterate that they're not. You know, contrary to U.S. own projection, China is not going after that global hegemon status that U.S. currently holds. You know, China has no intention to compete with United States to be the sole global hegemon around the world. That's that's not what China is about. You know, China has no 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 interest in in the role of the global policeman. So you know that that's that's the, the existential fear among the U.S. establishment is all that they're being clipped by China. Oh my God. It's going to be the China-dominated world, right? And, right? and China's like, no, no, no. That's that's just in your imagination. We're, we just want, we're just here to trade, right? Uh, but what China want is like U.S. saying, hey, look, we don't, you, we don't support Taiwan independence. I think those those are the the core issues that the both side care about. And and the more they 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 articulate, you know, their own positions, and they, I think that will clear some misunderstanding. And hopefully, to build on that basis of that understanding. You mentioned the low-hanging fruit of cooperation on in the environment, and it does seem to me that this is something that is less controversial than a lot of other global issues. However, with the trade uh, war still going on and some of the sanctions still in place. Isn't it really challenging for U.S. Uh, businesses to import? Because right now, solar and wind are manufactured in China at the lowest price point in the world. So if you're like, I don't know, South Africa, you are in fact importing Chinese solar. And the, the reason is it's it's cost effective to do so. It's the highest quality and it's the most affordable. But for the United States, currently they're not able to import a lot of uh, this technology. However, the United States still does need to clean up its uh, energy grid. The United States may have some solar, it has some hydro, it has some wind. However, I think Canada, Australia, the United States, they have the highest per capita fossil fuel emissions of any countries in the world. So is it going to potentially be possible for, let's say, California to import Chinese solar to clean up its power grid? Do you think that COP28 might be a good opportunity for the United States to recognize that it just makes more sense to import Chinese technology? Or is the United States going to continue to throw up uh, trade walls because they want to manufacture it themselves. What do you think? Well, I think we are going to see some baby steps. Like the, you know, we already have the news that China's uh, BYD is building school bus for the United States, a EV school bus. Um, so that, that's a plus. I, I, I don't think we're going to see necessarily some ground shaking breakthroughs, but step by step. Uh, you know, I, the cooperation and the trust have to be built over time. And I, I think any baby step taken is still an encouraging sign. I want to return back to Yellen for a moment. I was talking with some of my uh, colleagues here in China, and they mentioned that in 2008, 2009, China basically rescued the U.S. dollar by, during the economic dip, buying tons and tons of U.S. treasuries, basically bailing out the U.S. economy and the global economy. Uh, by basically rescuing the U United States, rescuing the dollar, rescuing the global economic order, which was kind of necessary at that point because the United States really was the pinnacle of economic growth. 
But I also noticed, and you mentioned this earlier, 2009, 2010, 2011, things started to change, and the United States did not continue to treat China with the same respect that it was owed. One of the examples is Obama's pivot to the Pacific, where they said they were going to try to spread half of their navy into the Pacific, basically to contain China. Uh, so given that that is a precedent in Sino-U.S. relations, and it does look like Yellen wants China to invest more in treasuries next year after, you know, the last 10 years of slowly uh, removing some treasuries as a part of Chinese uh, global investments. If China does buy a whole bunch of U.S. treasuries, does that mean that the U.S. is going to suddenly stop this overture of friendly diplomacy? What do you think? I think. China's strategy is always hope for the best and, and prepare for the worst. And I mean, China understands this U.S. history of uh, its own interaction with China, including, you know, what happened uh, in the immediate aftermath of 2008. Now, there, there's a couple of crucial differences between now and 2008. Um, you know, 2008, China was went on a spending spree on, on its own domestic infrastructure spending. There was like the China spending and $4 trillion that helped China to build out the high-speed rail, all the amazing roads and bridges, airports, et cetera. Um, but now China is built out. And, and, and also, right now, China is not in the same position um, itself back in 2008 to do another uh, spending spray because China is dealing with economic transition away from uh, the, the real estate focus investment mm -hmm. to, to a growth in uh, growth driven by more high tech sector, more productive mm -hmm. sector of the economy. So we are not likely to see another big uh, spending spray by Chinese central government. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is China will continue to buy treasury like they have always done because mm -hmm. U.S. dollar is still the world's reserve currency. And currently, U.S. dollar is actually very strong. But I expect China will continue to cut um, proportionally the amount of treasury they purchase because they, they also realize, you know, like the U.S. dollar is a sinking boat. The world trend is now is de-dollarization. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. U.S. China will definitely get more bang for its buck by investing in infrastructures in the global south through its Belt and Road Initiative. That's a whole that's a whole idea of Belt and Road Initiative. It's rather than have all these paper IOUs that's being controlled ultimately by US uh, central bank. Um, you know, they see what U.S. did to Russia during the Russian sanction when they can just froze all the Russian asset. Mm -hmm. China is taking all these uh, dollar reserves, the foreign currency reserve it has. It's investing globally to build up ports, infrastructure. So that will facilitate more trade. And, and China now is the world's largest trading nation. So we obviously benefit China, but it also benefit uh, the, the world. So, so that that trend will continue. The de-dollarization trend will continue. China will not abruptly cut off any purchase of, of U.S. Treasury. That will still continue, but I expect the the, the trend of China reducing its uh, Treasury holding will continue to continue 
forward. That's that's my take. Well, I'm going to be really interested in the next Yellen visit now, because I, actually I was thinking that Yellen was just going to maybe uh, get uh, China to buy more U.S. treasuries. But now I'm not sure. Recently, Saudi Arabia and China have agreed for their banks to hold each other's currency. So there is a petro yuan emerging instead of a petrodollar. However, the dollar remains really strong in spite of the fact that there have been trends in de-dollarization around the world. Uh, the dollar continues to maintain its strength. Do you think that there will be more diversified use of various currencies in the future and the dollar will take a, a smaller place in global trade? Or is this a temporary trend? What do you think? Oh, oh definitely. I mean, the, the, the de-dollarization right now is um, to move away from use of dollar in the global trade. You know, mm. I, I think the, the dollar status of world reserve currency will remain unchanged for the time being, foreseeable future. As a trade currency, dollar will be used less and less because, as you mentioned, uh, you know, pl plenty of Right now, China is a factory of the world. There's no reason for China and Saudi Arabia to trade in dollars when mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia is the largest you know, oil exporter to China. China exports its manufactured goods to Saudi Arabia. There's no reason that trade should be conducted in dollars. We'll see more and more of these uh, local currency transactions outside of the using the U.S. dollars going on forward. I mean, right now, the dollar is strong is really because U.S. have destroyed EU. Uh, I mean, the whole Russian sanction thing is really, you know, that destroying the German industry. The, all the, they got cut off on one of their best source for cheap energy. And now the German industrialists are decamping from Germany and moving their, their, their factory to the United States where gas, natural gas is cheaper. So, so there's that. But I mean, I don't see that can continue indefinitely. I mean, Europe can only be degraded so far. And and I so so US the broad the broad trend of de-dollarization will continue. You will not happen overnight. Uh, the US uh, currently China it's mostly because China has no interest right now to see yuan replace US dollar as a world's reserve currency. If, if Xi Jinping want that had to happen, it would happen already because uh you know because of the strength of uh, of uh, China's manufacturing economy. But the fact is that to be world's reserve currency, that means you will have to generate a large trade deficit with the rest of the world. And I don't think that's a role that China is prepared to take. Um, so, so this is why U.S. dollar will continue to be the, the world's trade currency because, I'm sorry, reserve currency, because that for now still benefits China. To, uh, uh, but as a trading currency, you will be less and less relevant because you know, country will just conduct, like you said, use their <clears throat> local currency. Last question. Yeah. We have seen, um, at least at the surface level, communication improve between the U.S. and China. Is that going to, rem given the United States is in two conflicts, actually way more than that, if we're looking at all the, the small little conflicts the United States is involved in in Africa and elsewhere, is it likely that the United States and China are going to have this current positive momentum moving forward in the midterm, the next few years? What do you think? What is your opinion? Well, we kind of have to see how the election. Can you predict the future? <laughs> we won't hold <laughs> well, you to it. it. 
I mean, U.S. election, right? That's that's uh, uh right. that's coming up, and and yeah. gonna have to see uh, you know, what the future hold in the second Trump presidency. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Who knows? You know, like Trump is a wild card. You, you never know. Uh, and, and right yeah. now, the way Biden is, you know, doing to destroying its uh, Democratic supporter base, there's a real likely possibility now that Democrats might lose and and, and Trump is going to be the next president. <laughs> and so so if Trump, Trump is president, all bets are off. Yeah. He's a wild card. We don't we don't really know. No one this can is predict one, him. Yeah, exactly. This is what one reason China has kind of distanced itself from the Biden administration, because like, who knows? Who knows if this guy is still going to be in power a couple of years from now? Right. I mean, but it, it's uh, it's still encouraging. They're talking right now. Uh, as for how, whether U.S., what kind of trajectory U.S.-China relation will take in the next year past the U.S. election, who knows? You know, like you said, it's, it's, you can't predict the future. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. We were meant to have this interview tomorrow, but I misscheduled it. So thank you so much for being amenable to moving it to today. And uh, have a wonderful day. I'm sure it's a beautiful day in Bali, in one of the most beautiful places in the world. So I'm sure you will have a lovely day. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jason. Oh yeah Oh yeah